Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I continue with the second part of a four-part series on alchemy, looking at the symbol and the psychological meaning of what the alchemists called the prima materia. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Prima materia has the quality of ubiquity. It can be found always and everywhere, which is to say that projection can take place always and everywhere. The English alchemist Sir George Ripley writes, The philosophers tell the inquirer that birds and fishes bring us the lapis. Every man has it. It is in every place in you, in me, in everything, in time and space. The goal of the alchemical opus was the production of what was known as the Philosopher's Stone. And that important image is going to be the subject of the fourth of these episodes on alchemy. Before talking about the stone, however, it's helpful to understand how one gets to that goal. That is, to understand the different aspects of the opus, the great work itself. In the next episode, I'm going to be looking at the different stages of the work. And for this episode, I want to start at the beginning, with the substance that the alchemists called the Prima Materia. Now, last time I ended with a quote from Edward Edinger's book, Anatomy of the Psyche, in which he spoke of the mutual opus that takes place between the ego and the unconscious. And this is how he described it. The ego needs the guidance and direction of the unconscious to have a meaningful life. And the latent philosopher's stone, imprisoned in the prima materia, needs the devoted efforts of the conscious ego to come into actuality. Together, they work on the great magistry to create more and more consciousness in the universe. And this cluster of ideas captures a fundamental aspect of the alchemical worldview. There is a substance of the highest value trapped in an undeveloped or contaminated state, and it is the task of the alchemists to free that substance 
and thereby contribute to the renewal not only of themselves, but of the whole world. And this substance is given many different names. That is, it's expressed through a variety of symbolic images. It is, as Edinger says, the latent philosopher's stone imprisoned in the prima materia. It's also spoken of as the logos that is caught in the embrace of physical nature. It's the gold which is derived through the transmutation of lead, and it is the anima mundi, the world soul, hidden in the confines of the material world and slumbering there, awaiting release. Translated into psychological terms, we could think of this situation as the possibility of consciousness, which emerges in varying degrees depending on the person from the darkness of the unconscious. It could also be understood as the quality of meaning or purpose that often lies dormant in a person's life, waiting, in a sense, to be activated. For the alchemists, the contamination of the highest value with the material in which it was caught was such that it required a preliminary breaking down process so that the desired product could be reconstituted, so to speak, in its higher form. As Edinger says, they thought that in order for a given substance to be transformed, it must first be reduced or returned to its original, undifferentiated state. That original, undifferentiated state was known as the prima materia, the first matter. And the idea behind this, derived from early Greek philosophy, is that everything partakes of both matter and form. Matter was understood to be pure potentiality, a kind of amorphous substance, a readiness, we could say, to take on some form. And form was thought of as what might be called the idea of something its intelligible reality, the activating principle that gave shape to matter. An analogy might help to make this a little clearer. Think of the image that exists only in the artist's mind. And guided by that image, she begins to shape a lump of clay. Image and clay, through the skill of the artist, are combined in the work of art, right? The clay reveals the image, and the image shapes the clay, and together they produce a kind of artistic epiphany, a glimpse of the original vision that inspired the artist. The image is not known without the clay, and the clay reveals nothing without the image. And so it is with form and matter. Form is revealed by being clothed in matter. And in the alchemical situation I discussed a moment ago, the form, the philosopher's stone, the logos, the anima mundi, is initially imprisoned or buried up or swallowed up in matter and must be released from this condition so that the two, form and matter, image, and clay, 
can then be united or reunited in a more effective and generative way. And this, like so much of alchemy, can get a little confusing. On the one hand, as we heard, this original condition represents a situation that must be reduced or returned to the prima materia so that the work of transformation can take place. On the other hand, the original contaminated state is the prima materia that needs to be worked and transformed. The alchemical texts speak of it in both ways, and it's best not to get too caught up in trying to logically sort out these distinctions. It's not a rational process, right? It's a symbolic process. And so the images that are used will express multiple layers of meaning. But it's to that second meaning that the original contaminated state is the prima materia that Jung's statement in our opening quote refers when he says, the prima materia has the quality of ubiquity. It can be found always and everywhere. This idea is expressed repeatedly throughout the alchemical literature. For instance, in a treatise called The Golden Tract from a collection of texts known as the Hermetic Museum, it says, This matter lies before the eyes of all. Everybody sees it, touches it, loves it, but knows it not. It is glorious and vile precious and of small account, and is found everywhere. The prima materia, it turns out, is not a special substance. It's exceedingly common, so common, in fact, that it's easy to overlook it, even to dismiss it as nothing at all. Worse than that, it's vile. It's likely to be something repulsive to us, something we would rather avoid. As Jung writes, the substance that harbors the divine secret is everywhere, including the human body. It can be had for the asking and can be found anywhere, even in the most loathsome filth. The highest value lies hidden in the lowest places. The unique is concealed by the common. The longed-for thing is lost in the unwanted. And all of this, of course, has psychological implications. The seeds of our own spiritual and psychological growth are to be found nowhere else but in the messy circumstances of our lives, in the still, undeveloped corners of our own hearts and minds, if, that is, we are able to see them and acknowledge them. One of the problems with the ubiquity, the commonness of the prima materia, is that it makes it hard to see, right? We notice those things that stand out from the background of the ordinary and everyday, more than we notice the background itself. 
And so it is that the author of the Golden Tract states, Our matter has as many names as there are things in the world. That is why the foolish know it not. And typically, those aspects of ourselves that we do not see in ourselves will be found somewhere outside us, in the form of projection. And this is why Jung links the prima materia with the psychological mechanism of projection. It can be found always and everywhere, he says in the opening quote, which is to say that projection can take place always and everywhere. One way to understand the prima materia from a Jungian point of view, then, is as a symbol for the unconscious. And furthermore, it's important to recognize that the unconscious is not only expressed interiorly through such things as our dreams. It meets us out in the world and in our reactions to the people and situations we encounter in the world. Projections change the world into the replica of one's own unknown face, writes Jung. And so to recognize such experiences as the prima materia of our individuation, the matter that needs to be worked on and transformed, requires of us a capacity for self-reflection, a capacity to question our reactions and not simply to take them at face value. In the alchemical opus, the raw material is placed into a well-sealed vessel and cooked or dissolved or pulverized so that all the impurities are removed and only what is essential remains. And psychologically, this translates into containing our raw emotions and our immature reactions, reflecting on them, taking responsibility for them, and trying to understand them, all of which means wrestling with them and even pushing back against them when necessary. And so I'd like to bring in a story now and see how these themes that I've been discussing so far might present themselves symbolically. And I'm going to look at a fairy tale from the Grimm Brothers collection called The Gnome, a section of which I want to share with you here. Now, at the start of the story, there's a king who has a tree from which he forbids anyone to pick the fruit that grows on it. And anyone who does so will fall victim to the king's curse and will disappear a thousand fathoms underground. The king's three daughters are tempted by the beautiful apples that grow there. The youngest daughter is sure their father loves them too much to include them in his curse. So she picks an apple, eats it, and gives it to her sisters to taste, which they do. In an instant, says the tale, all three sank deep under the ground. 
Mourning their disappearance, the king makes a proclamation that whoever can find the three daughters and bring them back will get to marry one of them. Three young hunters, three brothers, set off on the quest. They come to a castle that appears to be empty, but in which they find dishes of delicious, steaming hot food. They decide to make this their home base and to pursue the princesses from there. And this is where we pick up the story. They drew lots to see who would stay home the next day, and the lot fell to the eldest. When morning came, the two youngest went searching, and the eldest stayed home. At midday, a wee little man came in and asked for a piece of bread. The hunter took a loaf of the bread he had found there and cut off a slice. He handed it to the little man, but the little man dropped it and said, Would you kindly pick it up for me? The hunter stooped to pick it up, and at that moment the little man took a stick, grabbed him by the hair, and gave him a sound thrashing. The next day, the second hunter stayed home and didn't come off any better. When the other two came home in the evening, the eldest asked, Well... How was it? Terrible. So they told each other their tales of woe, but didn't breathe a word to the youngest, whom they disliked and called Stupid Hans, because he wasn't really of this world. The third day, the youngest stayed home, and the little man came again and asked for a piece of bread. When the youngest brother had given him his slice of bread, the little man dropped it and said, Would you kindly pick it up for me? What? cried stupid Hans. Why can't you pick it up for yourself? If you won't go to that much trouble for your daily bread, you don't deserve to eat it. The little man was furious. Pick it up! Pick it up! he screamed. But quick as a flash, the young hunter grabbed hold of him and gave him a sound thrashing. Stop! Stop! the little man cried out. Let me go and I'll tell you where the king's daughters are. When he heard that, he stopped hitting him. And the little man told him he was a gnome and lived under the ground. There are more than a thousand like me, he said. And if you'll come with me, I'll show you where the king's daughters are. The possessiveness of the king has caused his daughters to be trapped deep in the earth. Here is an image of the soul, swallowed up, hidden in matter, and needing to be recovered. And it's the unnaturalness of the king's attitude that is the cause of this loss. He's ruled by his desire to hold on to the apples, to prevent them from being eaten. This is against the principle of life, which is the principle of growth 
and change. In the natural unfolding of the life process, one thing becomes another, right? One state gives way to another. All things come into being, grow, flower, ripen, and pass away. To resist this cycle at any point, whether it manifests biologically or psychologically, is to interfere in the order of nature and to replace life with a kind of living death. Apples that are not eaten can only rot. Anything to which we cling too tightly becomes the ground in which we bury the soul. To cling means to be stuck, to be hardened in some way. It means that we are caught by some fixed way of seeing or responding to the world. Fixed, developed aspects of the personality, writes Edward Edinger, allow no change. They are solid, established, and sure of their rightness. The gnome in our story is a personification of the earth, the prima materia in which the highest value, symbolized by the princesses, lies trapped. He's a symbol for what is fixed and inflexible in us, what needs to be loosened up, even broken up, and made fluid and flowing again. The two older brothers embody the energy of what Edinger describes as solid, established, and sure of its rightness, of what allows no change. They are still controlled by their fixed reactions and perceptions, and this is shown by the fact that they are overpowered and beaten by the gnome. The youngest brother, on the other hand, does not fall prey to the demands of the gnome. Instead, he grabs hold of him and gives him a sound thrashing. Now, admittedly, this is a strange, even challenging image, right? Beating some other creature into submission hardly feels like a virtue. But if we look at it through the lens of alchemy, we find that this is an image that actually occurs quite frequently, and it's associated with what was known as the mortificatio. Mortificatio was one of the operations of the alchemical opus. It's described in terms of actions like torturing, beating, and killing. These actions are often depicted as being performed on a creature like a dragon, a frequent symbol of the prima materia, and, according to Jung, an image of the instinctual psyche. In other words, it is the raw material of one's own psyche, the still immature form of one's instinctual drives and reactions that need to be whipped into shape, so to speak. 
And this brings us to the takeaway. The prima materia is found always and everywhere, because, as Jung tells us, projection can take place always and everywhere. Or, to put it another way, it is what and how we see that matters. That is, in fact, the matter on which we need to work. It is the lens through which we see the world that needs to be cleansed. In the story, the two older hunters do not like their youngest brother because, we are told, he wasn't really of this world. He sees the world differently, and so he's able to relate to the gnome differently, and because of this, he will be the one to recover the princesses, to recover the soul. The secret of alchemy is that there is a hidden unity between outer reality and inner reality, between the physical world out there and the psychological world in here. The youngest brother is not really of this world because he is of both worlds. This unity of the inner and the outer cannot really be seen until the lens through which one sees has been made clear, until one's untrained instincts and reactions have been tempered and disciplined by the blows of a kind of conscious mortificatio process. In a recent post called Who Does the Work? that I wrote as a companion piece to this series on alchemy, I put this same idea this way. It is not just knowledge that is sought, but wisdom. And this is gained only when our experiences penetrate to the depths and change us. It is not what we do. It is what we become that matters. As I said earlier, the prima materia, and with it the latent philosopher's stone, is to be found nowhere else but in our own lives, in our very being. Infused with this alchemical sensibility, every moment becomes ripe for a deeper experience of meaning, and every barrier becomes a way to greater freedom. Freedom of spirit and soul. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost 
of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the support the show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. Here is a quote from Thomas Merton, written from the point of view of the Christian contemplative tradition, which very much echoes the imagery of the prima materia that I've been discussing. Merton talks about salvation in this quote, but the suggestion here is that salvation has to do with something like the rescue of and the establishment of one's God-given true self. And this, in turn, echoes in its own way the goal of the alchemical opus, the establishment of the philosopher's stone. So here's Merton. The object of salvation is that which is unique, irreplaceable, incommunicable, that which is myself alone. This true inner self must be drawn up like a jewel from the bottom of the sea, rescued from confusion, from indistinction, from immersion in the common, the nondescript, the trivial, the sordid, the evanescent. Until next time.